All right, again, welcome. And if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, will you turn them to them to the book of James, chapter 2. Book of James, chapter 2. After Genesis, before Revelation, James, chapter 2. I like her already. All right. Now let's begin in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. After 25 years of pastoring here, I still, on Saturday nights, grow very anticipated patient anticipation grows within me not knowing what god will do the next day and one of the things i always look forward to is seeing who comes through our church doors and one of the things that i always try to remember is that each and every person who comes through our church's door is a work in progress god is doing something and god sees in them uh, his finished work, where we only see the, the beginning or the progression of the work within the person. So to make any judgments or determinations of the person's value or worth to the congregation at that point would be foolish, because God has brought them here for the purpose of bringing about the person in whom he has chosen them to be. And so God is working through each and every person. So we must never show partiality to anyone who comes. For example, you may have someone come in with you know, an Armani suit and a Rolex watch pulling up in a, a you know, Lamborghini and think, oh, this person must be someone. They must be wealthy. Oh, I bet you if we uh, make him feel comfortable or her feel comfortable in the church, they'll tithe very you know, lucratively, and it could be beneficial for the church. Well, it's possible that's per- that person is very wealthy with the Armani suit, the Rolex watch, and the Lamborghini, or it could simply mean that that person's in grave debt, right? <laughs> it's the way our country works. But then another person may come in, and they're not dressed so well, you know, and they would they look like a homeless person who just you know, rolled in off the street. And like the character from the Peanuts, you know, pig pen, they walk and the cloud of dust appears around them. And you're like, oh boy, you know, let's keep this one in the uh, mechanical room. They can't get anything dirty there. And yet, they could be the one that God is going to use in a tremendous way. It is very shallow of us to determine a person by their outward appearance. 
You know, for years as a pastor, I've pastored during a, a moment in time where materialism was absolutely the, on the forefront of many's mind. Having to live in a certain zip code for notori- notoriety. Uh, they had to have a certain car. We went through the phase in the late 90s where everybody had to have a Lexus, and, and that was the car of choice back then. And, you know, I had a poor man's Lexus. I had a Toyota. And um, we've gone through these phases, and they come and go. But James here is very concerned because the early church now is resorting to partiality. He's starting to see that once again his Jewish brethren are vying for notoriety, elbow rubbing, name dropping, looking to uh, appease and and to uh, uh, affirm those who appear to be wealthy and of notable stature in the society in which they find themselves, in the community, in the culture. James says you've made a grave error by doing so. As one wrote, he said that the Jewish people in the day coveted the recognition and honor and vied for one another's praises. This is what Jesus dealt with. And if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 7 through 14, this is what Jesus was addressing when he gave the parable concerning those who attended the, the wedding feast and looked to sit in the most prominent places within the feast. And again, those prominent places of seating would indicate that these people are somebody within the society. So in verse 7, he, Jesus, uh, Luke writes, So he told a parable to those who were invited, and when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come to you and say, give place to this man. Then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Now, so they would all come in, they look for the best place, they would sit there to show that they were a person of notoriety. But Jesus says, don't do that. Because if someone comes in greater than you, then you're simply going to be displaced. You're going to ta- be taken from the table by the window and seated at the table next to the kitchen. I always end up at the table next to the kitchen. I guess that's better than family get-togethers where I'm still at the kids' table. I'm 54 and still at the kids' table. And so Jesus said, look for the lowliest place. So you don't have to be approached and moved in that way. But he's really speaking to the heart of the matter of the individual. Verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes up, uh, that he may say to you, friend, go up higher that you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who is humbled himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a uh, dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back, And you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So the idea of partiality, it still unfortunately takes place in the church in America today where we value one person over another person simply on the basis of appearance and our thoughts and how they may benefit the church or the congregation. And so James says, don't do that, for that is sin. And he begins in verse 1, if you look again with me to chapter 2 of James. My brother, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. 
it was, a, it was an incredibly important point that the early church realized that they were continuing the ministry in which Jesus started. And as Jesus conducted himself, so the early church was to conduct themselves. They were meant to reflect the attitudes and the characteristics of their Savior Jesus. And in so doing, glorify God as Jesus glorified God with his entirety. And now the issue of partiality came about. When it's clear from Scripture that God is no respecter of persons. He does not value one greater over another. This word partiality means to make an unjust distinction between people by treating one person better than another. To show favoritism towards one and not another. Another one wrote concerning the grammar and the Greek used here. The Greek word behind favoritism is literally receiving the face. Meaning determining and concluding simply on the basis of face value. The value of the contribution that person would make to the congregation. The word has apparently, was apparently invented by the New Testament writers as a literal rendering of the Hebrew word for partiality. Receiving the face vividly portrays the essence of partiality, making judgments about people simply on the basis of their outward appearance. But this is inconsistent with the character of God. Deuteronomy 10.17 should be on the screen behind us. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome, shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Paul reiterated this in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So Paul in his personal life did not look to rub shoulders or to gain stature by uh, who he associated with. It wasn't important to him. He didn't believe that that could bring him to where God would have him to be. He solely relied upon God for that exaltation, bringing Paul to the place that God wanted him to be. Even the court system, historians tell us, in the Jewish culture, recognized the need for equality within the judicial process. For example, before the arguments would begin before the judge, it would be apparent if one was rich and one was poor, simply based on the clothes in which they wore. So they had one of two options. Number one, the rich person could buy the uh, poor individual wealthy clothes so they would both look the same. Or the rich person could dress in a poor clothing and therefore resemble the person in whom he is in court with. If they were to enter before the judge, either they would both sit or they would both stand. Neither one was given prominence, prominence over the other. And this allowed for a fair and objective evaluation. And we'll talk about that why in just a moment. But notice with me in verse 2. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings, a very interesting Greek word, it means more culturally than just simply someone adorned with gold rings. It does mean that the ring is placed in a place of uh, prominence where it would be recognized and seen by all. It does mean that. But the type of ring here described is a ring specifically worn by those political officials of the Roman Empire. And one historian brought out that it is very interesting that in chapter 1, James writes to those who are under serious trials and persecutions, and yet in chapter 2, then James follows this with a rebuke concerning partiality to those political figures, the, the authoritarians, that may come into the church and they want to 
alleviate their persecution, alleviate their suffering by, you know, interacting with these officials and treating them with partiality within the church itself. It's a very interesting observation. But he also had fine apparel. And this apparel was, again, a word used in the Greek to, to, to note that this apparel was worn purposely for the uh, setting apart of the individual who wore them. Oh, you know, somebody coming in with something elaborate, saying, oh my, oh my. Now, I'm convinced that if anybody wore a suit and tie here at Calvary, we'd all be like, man, that guy's in the wrong church, you know? But they would wear these things to be noticed, specifically to be noticed. And then James states very clearly that in contrast, and there should come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And these were clothes that were wore by those who were homeless, those who were destitute, those who were in poverty, an individual that would seem to have no value within that current culture. Now, when reading the New Testament, we must read it through the lens of the culture at the time and not our Western culture today. To be in one of those demographics stated a lot to the, to the rest of the population within that community. If you were wealthy and notable, you know, notable and you also were prominent and an official, etc., in that society, there was the association in the mind of those who perceived those individuals that these people were, quote-unquote, blessed in some way by the deities in whom they worshipped. When a person was seen to be in poverty, having nothing, it was generally concluded that that person had, is now suffering the curse or the consequence of the deity in which they had worshipped for some reason. And these people were often avoided because, again, that person had curse cooties and you didn't want to get that by associating with them. It's a very simplistic way of a complex description of the demographic of that time. So it would be easy to see how these mindsets would trickle into the early church. Now, we know clearly that James wrote to Jewish believers that were scattered abroad, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The Jewish people had a similar understanding, where by the time that Jesus had arrived, his first coming, they had taken a national principle found in Deuteronomy 28, and they applied it to the individual. If the individual was blessed with material wealth, the assumption was that they were blessed of God. If the person was lame or couldn't see or deaf and in poverty due to those circumstances, it was generally assumed that they had done something against God, and now God was cursing them or their fathers before them. Now, these conclusions were incorrect, but they are found in the New Testament. In the Gospels, when individuals were brought to Jesus for healing, how often was the question asked, has this person sinned or someone, uh, one of their ancestors have sinned? And Jesus would, would say, neither, That's, this is now for the purpose of glorifying me as Messiah showing you that I am God. So the Jews had a similar concept. Now, understanding that mindset makes it much easier to understand how they would and why they would show partiality with people coming into the church. The person's blessed, oh, they must be blessed. The person's unfortunate and not blessed, oh, they must have done something wrong. Partiality could be discovered on that basis. But in verse 3, he then clarifies very clearly, and you pay attention, that means you adorn, you celebrate the person as they come into the congregation, to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, now you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, now you stand in the back of the room or sit here at my footstool, which was a place where servants uh, uh, sat. 
Then James says it very clearly. Have you not shown partiality, favoritism, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now he really gets to the heart of the matter. You're predetermining simply based on the outward appearance of the individual their value to the congregation. You are judging. And your thoughts are evil because you are assuming their benefit or their value to your congregation, to your personal relationship, interaction, etc. Shouldn't be. You're wrong for doing so. And he calls them out for it. The early church had many times of grave difficulty. And there were many times that it appeared to be on the verge of fracturing and dividing. And one of the very first times is when the Gentiles were allowed into the Christian community. And the, the conversation then became, do they need to become Jews first, observing all the laws of Moses, including circumcision? Can you imagine a 50-year-old man gets saved at our church, and I'm saying, well, before you can go to heaven, you have to be circumcised. You'd find out really quickly if that person was committed. <laughs> okay? And this was a huge debate. This was an enormous debate in the early church. And the church was on the brink of fracturing at that point because there were those Jewish people who absolutely did not want the fellowship of the Gentiles because in their mind, the Gentiles had been a source of defilement and pollution. But now you're telling me that in and through Christ, they have been cleansed in the same way that we have. And that's what Paul says in the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. Yes, yes, and absolutely yes. For they're neither Jew nor Gentile. Male or female, free or slave, we all are saved through the same blessed Christ. The early church was constantly looking to maintain the unity within it. Today the unity of the church is being challenged once again, but this time it is not the association of rich and poor. Today it is the influence of self. If a congregation comes together and each person of that congregation is self-seeking in their expectations of what that church may uh, provide for them, unity is going to be very difficult to maintain. That's why throughout the New Testament, Paul absolutely stated that we must seek the same mindset of Christ and that of humility. That we have to have the mindset that Christ have that we have not come here to be served, but to serve others. To love individually, uh, uh, individuals unconditionally as Christ loved us. And also another factor that contributes to the division of a church rather than to the unity of a church is immaturity. Immaturity. My wife is a preschool teacher. And on occasion, when I go to visit her class, either to read a story to the class, and they love when I do the various voices of Jonah's whale and so forth, we sometimes go out and watch them at recess. And it's amazing how they all, you know, it's my turn on the swing. No, it's my turn. It's my turn. And, you know, we're just keeping them at bay constantly, you know, go to your corner. Their immaturity is self-seeking in many regards. And an immature church, individuals who are immature and carnally minded will always be seeking self-gratification when they come to worship God. And I'll tell you, they are some of the most miserable people you can have in a congregation. Why? Because they're never satisfied. And the reason they're never satisfied is because they're looking for things to satisfy them that only Christ can do. And that satisfaction then begins with denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following after Him. That satisfaction comes when we say, not my will be done, Lord, but your will be done. Selflessness, humility, these are the characteristics that will allow you to interact and find unity amongst the body of Christ. 
Paul said very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4 that maturity is needed to truly maintain unity in the body of Christ. And so, these, if we are to show partiality, we judge and evil thoughts are motivating that judgment. So in verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? This is the basis of it all. If Jesus chose the poor, why are we showing partiality to the rich? If the poor are going to be heirs of the kingdom of God and are going to find richness in the faith that God has provided, who are we then to deprive them of that within the congregation, in the early church, in our church today? From the very beginning, God has always said that he is for the poor. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Samuel writes, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the heap, ash heap, to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. In Luke 6 20, then he, that is Jesus, lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you, poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Or in Luke 4, 18 and 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover the sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The New Testament writers, Paul himself, stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 and 27. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many of you are wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And then James asks a question, and this question would bring them again to their cultural reality. When he says, very clearly in verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man, for do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? From the beginning of history, the rich have taken advantage of the poor throughout societies. The rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer throughout the history of the world. In the time that this was written, landowners would often buy huge portions of land, rent them back to the people at unaffordable prices, and when they could not pay, they would then confiscate not only the land again, but they would also confiscate all of the uh, crops that were planted and were about to be harvested. And they would take continued advantage of the poor. And this is the way in the culture, uh, the Roman and in the Jewish culture, that the rich often became richer. In the history of the United States of America, in the last 20 years, we've experienced two events now that have made billionaires more wealthy than ever before. In 2008, we saw that the collapse of the subprime mortgage and the collapse of the housing collapsed the whole economy and brought it to a standstill. Credit, you know, people were not making loans anymore. Banks were not making loans anymore. And the whole system froze up. When it was all said and done and the bailouts were all given, it was the wealthy who benefited the greatest from those bailouts. Main Street America got poorer. The wealthy got richer. The banks got more powerful, became more powerful after it was all said and done. 
And they consolidated even further to again reach the pinnacle of the idea that they are too big to fail. But then in 2020, during the COVID pandemic, we saw a wealth transfer in the United States of America like we have never seen before. One article stated that American billionaires in a 23-day period of time increased their wealth by $282 billion in a 23-day period of time. The lockdowns. Billionaires became richer. When it was all said and done, by April 10th, 2021, $3.2 trillion was made by the wealthiest individuals in the United States of America. When you have that kind of wealth disparity in any, any kind of a nation, the middle class continues to be eroded in our nation. The middle class means an individual is financially viable, they're able to sustain themselves, they're not dependent on a government uh, policy or political party, and therefore they can vote objectively concerning who they would have represent them within the governmental system. But when an individual becomes dependent on government policies or political parties, they tend to always then vote to keep those people in power to allow the uh, financial viability to continue in their life. The middle class of America allowed for the financial success that we see that we reaped from World War II all the way into the 1970s and to this day. The middle class must be protected if we are going to have a healthy social environment. But so much is working against us today, isn't it? We all became a lot poorer in our country just due to inflation itself, haven't we? Our savings accounts have taken hits, maybe your stock portfolio, maybe your retirement plans. 401ks seem to be falling fast, but again, the wealthy continue to become wealthy. Now, please, don't get me wrong, I am a capitalist, and I believe in capitalism. But again, what we are seeing now is exploitation. What we're seeing now is individuals being taken advantage of. We're seeing now the American people becoming individually poorer simply because now it takes $60 to fill up our gas tank, doesn't it? The dollar doesn't go nearly as far as it once did. You know, uh, another day, another dollar. I can't say that now. Now it's another day, another 250 due to in inflation. But that's not all. One of those men who gained incredible wealth during the pandemic was Bill Gates, who absolutely, in his TED Talks previous to the pandemic, stated that vaccines would be the next great investment for the American people. Why was Bill Gates involved in this process? Well, it's not because he's a vaccine expert. It's not because he's a biologist or he's a doctor. He's a monopolist. Bill Gates looks and sees and discovers where monopolies can take place legally. And he realizes that the greatest sales marketing strategy is to have a product that everybody has to have. That's what he did with Microsoft. That was his whole thing there. Well, today, Bill Gates not only increased his wealth exponentially during the crisis, but today is the, one of the largest farmland owners in America. Currently, he owns over 269,000 acres of farmland in America. Just this week, the AG of North Dakota succumbed to allowing him to buy another 2,100 square uh, acres of farmland in North Dakota for the purpose of investment and leasing it back to farmers. Yeah, you already see the business strategy. Here in the state of Illinois, Bill Gates is one of the largest, if not the largest, farm owner in the state of Illinois. He owns 17,940 acres of farmland in the state of Illinois alone. That's 38 square miles worth for the purpose of investment. Now, 
when investors invest, what do they expect from their investment? Return. Return. Profitability. That's the whole point. Now, I don't know about you, but food's getting often expensive, isn't it? Every other day we turn around and there's another fire at another food packaging plant. There are mysterious diseases and, uh, and cows are dying everywhere. Over, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, 3,000 or now 10,000 head of cattle died across the United States. Eggs are getting expensive. You remember when you used to buy a dozen? Now I can afford three. You know, I'm sorry, do you, do you, do you have a quarter of a dozen? <laughs> Things are getting expensive. In the end of 2020, investment groups started buying huge records of number of homes across America. What happened to home prices? What happened to rental prices? They skyrocketed. Not only people were taking full mortgages out to afford a mortgage, but they were also paying cash above and beyond that target amount. They are now predicting that in some areas of the country, home values are going to plummet by 40 to 45%. Because those investors are getting out now. Because they're not viable investments anymore, because no one can afford the rental payments that are needed to compensate for the inflation that the landlord is experiencing uh, to maintain that home for the renter. Now, why do I say all this? Because I think that we can make a very clear, distinctive argument that we have seen oppression increase with the wealth of individuals grow exponentially, haven't we? We have... We seem to, our whole economy seems to be changing to not only allow the wealthy to continue to get wealthy at the expense of the poor, but they also seem to become more powerful. One of the things that really concerns me about our political system today is that the net worth of each member of Congress is $3.5 million or more. When it becomes that profitable to be a senator, what do you want to do? You want to continue to be a senator as long as possible. That's not the way it was meant to be. The original Constitution stated that these people were meant to represent and to serve us as our representatives. I hope you all voted last Tuesday. I hope you did. Because, again... Things have to change because if we keep going in this direction, I can't imagine what our children and grandchildren are going to experience. Things are becoming unaffordable. And when you have this kind of wealth disparity based upon corruption, not someone working hard and gaining wealth or generational wealth passed from one family member to another due to the fact that they came and worked hard for it. But when you see that laws are being written to benefit the wealthy, for example, if the investment were vaccines and all of a sudden those vaccines were mandated by the government, you would have a monopoly, wouldn't you? And you would become further wealthy. We see now that even Dr. Anthony Fauci is being scrutinized for the wealth that he gained during the pandemic and the eight years before that. And when you have that kind of relationship where it becomes profitable, you lose objectivity. And so we must be very, very careful. And as things become difficult in America, we as a church must respond the way Christ would respond to those who come into the church. And we must not succumb to the temptation of placating those who we think may benefit us in our times of needs, but remember that Jesus Christ came for the poor. He came for those who had nothing who were disfranchised by the society, considered untouchable, defiled by the society. God always provides what we need. Where God guides, God provides. 
My prayer over the last three years has been, Lord, I want to be solely dependent on you for our financial health. I don't want to look at members of the congregation as our source of income. But consider always that God is the one that provides for us. My wife and I do that for our personal life. You may want to take this yourself also. Understanding that it is God who provides for us, and if He doesn't provide it, then we don't need it. He's kind of like Walmart. If they don't have it, we don't need it. Okay? The only way to keep our perspective properly is to keep our eyes on the Lord during these times and trust Him for our daily needs and provisions. If they were looking to alleviate some of the burden and pressures that the trials and tribulations were putting upon them by placating to the wealthy, James rebukes them for doing so and reminds them, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? That is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so then we are called to a higher standard. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. There's much discussion amongst Christians. The discussion centers around the fact of, are we still under the law of God? There were those that were associating themselves throughout the body of Christ in America with a a movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement. It was basically that as Christians, we needed to observe all of the laws of Moses and enjoy the grace and salvation of Jesus Christ, but one was predicated upon the other. Paul made it abundantly clear in Colossians that that isn't so, that the new covenant superseded that of the old covenant and that we are under a covenant of grace in and through Jesus Christ. Our salvation depends not on what we do, but what, on he, what He has done for us. But that doesn't mean that we still don't operate under a law, but this law is vastly superior to the old. It's called the royal law, the, the law of love that governs our heart. They call it the royal law first and foremost because Jesus pointed to the two most significant commandments of the Old Testament. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law that governs us. And it's called the royal love first because Jesus gave it to us. Again, already found in the Old Testament. But there's another reason it's called the royal law. It's because The royal law, one law, rules them all. And that is, if you love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus went on to say, you fulfill all the laws of the law and of the prophets. James is saying that's our standard. It's vastly superior to the standard that we were once under as, of course, the Jews in whom he was writing to were accustomed, the Mosaic law. But now we are under the royal law the law of love. He says in verse 9, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. There's no ands, ifs about it. There's no ambiguity to it. And are are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do uh, murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The Old Testament law was unique. It It operated as a unit. And before God, if you were to violate any one of the 300 some laws, some count as 600, but I think they duplicate some that way, then you were guilty of everything because you had lost the standard of perfection. So these Jewish individuals apparently still had a conscience towards the Mosaic law. They were fulfilling elements of it, 
But James says if you fulfill those elements and you do not fulfill the royal law, the law given to us, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're guilty of everything. You're guilty of the whole thing before God. For perfection has been lost. And you become a transgressor, one who willfully steps over the line. James is making it abundantly clear here that we must love one another as Jesus Christ loved us. His character must play out in our actions today if we are going to continue the work in which Jesus started when he was here on this earth. And we must realize that the royal law supersedes that of the Mosaic. He closes in verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We know that one who doesn't believe will stand before God at the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. The books will be open and they will be convicted by every action, word, and thought that they have committed against the law of God, the Ten Commandments. That is the standard for them. Now, we as believers are told by Paul that we will stand before what is known as the Bema Sea of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's at that moment that our life is evaluated that we pass through a purifying type of fire and those things done with the right heart and right motivations and so forth in the right way will be like precious stones and precious metals such as gold and silver. But those things that are done in selfish ambitions that without a pure motive will burn away as hay and stubble and will have nothing but still be saved. We are going to be judged by the royal law of love. Meaning it's not our sin that will be judged for that has been judged once and for all through the finished work of Jesus Christ, but what we did with the new life. And it appears that the key element of our application of the new life is to love others, our neighbors, as ourselves. Jesus dealt with the issue of the religious leader and the lawyers who came to him saying, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, anyone in need. He summed it up through the parable of the Good Samaritan, the one in need. It is that law that we will be subjected to. Did you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That means that we commit everything to Him. He's the preeminence within our life. And as a result of that, we sacrificially loved one another and our neighbor. That's our standard that we will be brought to. And I don't know about you, but that standard seems awful high to me, doesn't it? And the only way I may fulfill that is through the Spirit of God. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. If we will be willing to look at the individual who walks through the doors of our church and see them as Christ sees them, and our first reaction is not to judge them unaccordingly, is not to determine and to conclude falsely their worth or value to our congregation, but if the attitude of our heart is to show them mercy as God has showed us mercy, then we will fare well. We will do well. To show and to understand. Not to predetermine that this one who is wealthy must be blessed and this one who is dressed poorly must be cursed of God. To abandon those ideas and to simply seek to love and to show mercy to those who come through the doors of this church. I ask you of our, as our congregation... One of the things that you may not realize is that I am finite. Did you realize that? 
I can't be everywhere at, all the time. And often after a church service, people need my attention. They need my help. And I'm more than willing to give it. But that means I'm unavailable to meet people. I'm unavailable to interact with those new people who may come through the door. So I ask of you, will you help me with that? Making people feel welcomed. Showing them the love of Jesus Christ. Answering questions that they may have. One statistic after another shows that the hardest step for a believer to do is to step into a new church. They're so concerned about what will take place after they step within the building of that church. It it causes them a moment of anxiety and panic and often they don't take that step. Will you help me make that step so much easier? You guys are wonderful people. We are blessed to have you here at this church. Well, some of you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Now everybody's like, is he talking about me? I just want to keep you on your toes. Will you please help me to make people feel welcomed at our church? We had someone come last week to uh, enjoy the, the food afterwards. And she said to my wife, she said, I cannot believe I stepped into the church and, and I didn't burn it down. What was her thinking before she got here? What do we need to know about her? You know, maybe we should ask for our references before we let him in. But you can tell that she had thought about it. She had wondered what was going to happen. But if she only knew that each and every one of us were saved by the grace of God. Each and every one of us is a work in progress. None of us have arrived yet. So who are we to be any less patient and any less graceful and any less loving to someone who walks through our doors for the very first time? We may not know who they are, but what an opportunity to get to know them, to allow them to come in and to feel welcome and loved, and to see what God may do through their life. That's why I do what I do, because I want to see what God will do through your life. And we cannot see that if we show partiality, playing favorites.